Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Thanks be to God. Make every effort to come to me soon because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you for he is useful to me in the ministry. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself, because he strongly opposed our words. At my first offense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that I might fully preach the word, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus has remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you as do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. My name is Nathan, and I'm one of the elders here at New King, and uh, if we haven't met, I'd love to meet you. Uh, so today we come here to the end of Second Timothy. Uh, we have been in First and Second Timothy, I think as long as we've lived in Vermont, so that's about nine months. Uh, soon we will begin in Genesis, so all those new babies that were born will finish that up by the time they graduate. Uh, so come back in the next few weeks to start Genesis. Um, it'll be great. No, I'm just kidding. It won't take that long. So the end of a life is a really unique thing uh, to witness. Now, I don't, I don't strive to be that guy that talks about his dead dad all the time, uh, but as I was reading this passage, it just continually came to mind the last week of my father's life. And there are so many similarities that I found in reading this passage uh, and in talking with my dad uh, that week. I felt similar to how Timothy must have felt when he read the end of this letter. And those conversations I had with my dad, we would go from like deep theological conversations uh, to what could be thrown out in the garage uh, to what to do with my mom and sister, to like a list of dad's favorite and least favorite people. Uh, and so those will forever be some of my favorite and some of the weirdest conversations uh, I've ever had in my life. And so we often feel like that when we get to the end of a letter, and particularly Second Timothy, because this is the last recorded words we have of Paul. And so it seems disjointed. Uh, last week, Ben finished up the, the previous verses uh, of chapter 4, and that's really the theological conclusion to the book of 2 Timothy, this idea that Paul has fought the good fight, that he's finished the race, that he's kept the faith. And then Tim, uh, Paul turns to Timothy to just give him some final instructions. 
So here's Paul. He's chained in prison. He's in a dungeon. It has a single hole at the top for air and light. We think that it's probably the Murmurtime prison. And the purpose of that prison was to hold prisoners that were assumed that they would be executed. We know that he's lived a hard life. And he knows that the only way out of prison is through his execution. He describes his life in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24. He says, Five times I received the forty lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning, which, by the way, in that stoning, they all left because they thought he was dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day at the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. So when we think of Paul, Paul is feeble. He's frail. A life of missionary work in this region has left him scarred. Certainly, he was disfigured. He must have walked with a hobble. I imagine that you could see many of his bones. He is every bit the person we would describe as having lived a hard life. But despite Paul's life being over in just a few months after this letter, Despite him being chained in a dungeon, I think the ending of 2 Timothy has three evidences of God's grace in his life. And I think that all of those evidences are available to each one of us in this room. So here are the three evidences of grace in Paul's life available to you, and we'll talk about them as we go along. The first is gospel relationships. So Paul talks about three types of those. First, the church. Second, partners in ministry. And then third, friends. The second evidence is God's presence. And the third is God's heavenly kingdom. So let's look at gospel relationships. In these final 14 verses, there are 18 individuals mentioned, if you count Timothy, who isn't explicitly mentioned. Those 18 individuals make up these three categories of individuals. So let's look at uh, the brothers and sisters in the church. So in verse 21, Paul says, Eubulus greets you, as do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. We know little to nothing about these three men and one lady, but we are confident they are part of the church in Rome because they are closely connected and all the brothers and sisters. So let's recap Paul's dealings with the church in Rome. At the end of the book of Acts, Paul is arrested in Jerusalem. He's put on trial. During the course of that trial, he appeals to Caesar. So the last chapters of the book of Acts followed that journey from Jerusalem to Rome in the course of his trial. And the book of Acts ends like this. In chapter 28, verses 30 and 31, it says, Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We don't know much about Paul's appeal to Caesar and how that went. Uh, church history leads us to believe that Paul appealed to Caesar. He met with Caesar. He was released. And in Romans 15, Paul tells us that his desire is to take the gospel to Spain. 
So it's a fairly widely held belief that he was able to do that after he appealed to Caesar that first time. But sometime after that trial and appeal, uh, Paul is arrested again, and now he's in the midst of another trial chained in prison. And yet he mentions these three brothers and one sister from the church in Rome. These are presumably four people he built a relationship with in his previous time in Rome. And they've come to check on him in prison, either once or maybe even multiple times. And they remind us of the importance of the church, what we do here. It's in the church that God has gathered a local group of people into one place to worship him and to fellowship together. It's in the context of the local church that we see the care for each other play out most importantly. Paul has already told the Galatians in Galatians 6 2, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And in verse 10, therefore, we have opportun- as we have opportunity, let us look for good of all, especially those who belong to the household of faith. Paul encouraged the Ephesians in Ephesians 19 to speak to one another in, ha- in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. When we are a part of a church, we experience the kingdom of God. The church is this safe haven outpost of the kingdom in a far country. Personally, I have no idea how people function in the world without the church. I think about the lowest moments in my life, whether that was the crushing weight of sin I couldn't bear or the deep grief of the loss of my father and a whole host of other deep valley moments in my life. And every time I'm in one of those moments. There's someone from the church whispering in my ear the words of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, or the words of David, The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Just last week, I was talking to a dear saint here at New King. She told me when her close friend's husband died, she called her up, and she told her she was going to call her every single day because no one can bear that burden alone. She said, I don't care if you get sick of me, you need me to do this. So that's my charge to you. Be that saint. Be like Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia. Be unknown to church history, but be intimately known in the life of your brothers and sisters here at New King. We're all depending on you. We're all depending on each other. Don't wait for someone to serve you. Find a way to serve someone else today. So the second category of people that Paul mentions are partners in ministry. He mentions several people who we can put into this category, and I think it's helpful if we just kind of walk through them and see how they either encouraged or discouraged Paul in his ministry. So we'll start on a low note. Paul mentions Demas, who has deserted him since he loved the present world and he's gone to Thessalonica. Many partnerships in ministry will be wonderful. We'll get to some of those in a minute in Paul's life. But in regards to Demas, this was a partnership that started great and ended with utter pain. We first hear of Demas in Colossians 4.14 and again in Philemon 24. He's a co-worker of Paul, and we can assume he's a good co-worker of Paul. But now Paul is in a dire situation. And where's Demas? He's fallen in love with the world, and he's gone off to Thessalonica. In 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul has commanded Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as a prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. 
Demas, instead, has lived out 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. He became a lover of self, a lover of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, a slanderer, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, a traitor, reckless, conceited, a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. It's hard for us to believe that a man who traveled with Paul, who saw God use Paul to proclaim the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, who saw God deliver Paul in many miraculous ways, would desert him. But this is what sin does. It lures us away. And those things we once valued and loved, those things we devoted our life to, the goodness and the grace of God that called us to himself, those things become drowned out by our sin. But heed the words of the Apostle John in 1 John 2, 17. He says, The world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. I think about ministry partnerships in my own life that started out great but ended poorly. Let me be clear. It happened to Jesus with Judas. It happened with Paul, uh, to Paul with Demas. It most certainly will at some point happen to you with someone else. It's not a reason, however, to not work together in pursuit of the expansion of God's kingdoms in the hearts of men and women. Paul mentions five more men who have been great partners, but for some reason or another, uh, they've gone away, either on some type of missionary assignment or due to uncontrollable circumstances, they're not with them. So each of these men are loved by Paul, and they have his blessing to not be there. So we're going to look at Crescens, Erastus, Trophimus, Titus, and Tychicus. We know absolutely nothing about Crescens, uh, other than what is mentioned here in 2 Timothy, so we're just going to leave him be. Uh, ask that when you get to heaven. You can learn more about him. Uh, we're not confident who Erastus is. He could be the city treasurer that Paul mentions in Romans 16. It's very likely, though, that he's, he is the Erastus who accompanied Timothy in Acts 19.22 to Macedonia under Paul's direction. Trophimus is a native of Ephesus. He was with Paul in Acts 20 uh, when he met the Ephesian leaders in Miletus, and he accompanied Paul to Jerusalem in Acts 21. And while we know very little about these men, it's evident here in the last recorded words of Paul that these are faithful servants who ministered alongside him. He certainly would have loved to see every single one of them before his execution. Unfortunately, following the Lord's will sometimes means we will be separated from those that we love. But let me encourage you, though, that Jesus is worth it. We are well acquainted with Titus. Paul sent him his own letter. We know that is the book of Titus. Uh, in that book, he's in Crete on an assignment from Paul. It's in that letter that Paul calls him his true son in the common faith. Paul continually speaks well of uh, Titus. In 2 Corinthians 7, 6, uh, how God had sent him, he talks about how God had sent Titus uh, to Paul and to his missionary, uh, missionary companions to encourage them. And Paul used Titus to correct churches, uh, wrong things done in churches. In Titus 1.5, Paul says, The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. He must have completed this work in Crete because now Paul has sent him uh, to Dalmatia, likely to do really similar work uh, to what he did in Crete. Let me just encourage you in a world of Demases, be a Titus, an encourager used by God. 
Tychicus is, at the very least, Paul's trusty messenger. Paul ends Ephesians by saying, Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I am sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Again, in Colossians 4, Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and so that he may encourage your hearts. Now, Paul has sent him to Ephesus, where Timothy is, probably with this letter in his hand and possibly to stay there while Timothy leaves Ephesus and comes to Rome. Paul briefly mentions Carpus. He says in verse 13, When you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with Carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. Carpus is the true hero here in our 2 Timothy 4. He has Paul's books. Worthy is the man who'll keep your books safe while you're in prison. Let's jump to Alexander, and then we'll close out with Mark. So in verse 14, Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself, because he strongly opposed our words. In full disclosure, we cannot be certain that Alexander was ever a partner in ministry with Paul. In 1 Timothy 1.20, he mentions a man named Alexander who shipwrecked his faith. But we don't know if this is the same Alexander. The reality is that the Roman Empire had a ton of men named Alexander in it. So we're not confident who Alexander is, but I wanted to talk about him. He doesn't fit anywhere else, so here's as good as any. So what we do know about this Alexander is that he did great harm to Paul. Many commentators believe that the Greek, the way the Greek is worded, that it insinuates that Alexander informed many evil things against Paul. So they think it's highly likely that Alexander is the reason Paul was put into prison. And more than getting Paul arrested, though, he opposed the message of the gospel. Verse 14 is a statement, the Lord will repay him according to his works. That's not a wish that Paul has that God will smite Alex because he's a jerk. Instead, Paul is matter-of-factly reminding Timothy, and even probably himself, that God will judge those who stand in opposition to the gospel. There will be times as we attempt to spread the message of the gospel that there will be opposition. There will even be times when it's necessary to name names and avoid opposition. We must be confident, however, that God will continue to allow the gospel to go forth despite that opposition. And finally, partner in ministry, let's look at Mark. I think it's important for us to understand Mark and Paul's history. So let's begin in Acts 13. In verse 5, it says, Arriving in Salamis, they, that's Barnabas and Saul, who is Paul, proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. So John here is Mark. We know that from church history and tradition. There's never been any different understanding. John is Mark. He's called John Mark in Acts 12. In Acts 13, he's called John. In Acts 15, he's called both John Mark and just Mark. In 2 Timothy here, he's called Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, he's called Mark. So don't get tripped up by that. John, Mark, same guy. So anyway, he's traveling with Barnabas and Paul. And so in Acts 13, Luke tells us, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and went back to Jerusalem. So why did John Mark leave? We don't know. What we do know is that it wasn't a pleasant departure with everyone's blessing. Later in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas feel led to go on another missionary journey. And Acts 15, 37 and following says this, Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, 
But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. What we can safely assume is that Mark, for some reason or another, became fearful and left the team. Paul had not seen in him a significant enough change uh, in his heart and was unwilling to take him again on the second journey. But fast forward to 2 Timothy 4.11. He tells Timothy, bring Mark with you for he is useful to me in the ministry. We know a lot about Mark. The Jerusalem church met in Mark's mom's house. It's this house that Peter returned to early in the book of Acts after he was miraculously freed from prison. Many believe that the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples uh, before his crucifixion was, in, uh, was eaten in this house. Mark was an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus. Something changes about Mark from that sharp disagreement between Barnabas and Paul in Acts, though. Paul mentions him positively in Colossians 4.10. Peter refers to him as his son in 1 Peter 5. And now, in the final days, he, in Paul's final days, he asked Timothy to bring him along. At the end of his life, in a dungeon, Paul makes a list of the last believers he wants to see on earth before his execution, and Mark makes the cut. There was a time in Mark's life when he was a failure. He ran home to mom. He must have lived in shame and in despair, and yet the greatest missionary evangelist to ever walk the face of the planet wants to see him before he dies. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit used Mark to give us the gospel of Mark. Have you ever felt like a failure? Have you ever lived in shame? Have you deserted God's calling on your life out of fear? Jesus restored Mark and made him useful to the ministry. And brothers and sisters, he can do the same for each of you. And so the third type of relationship that Paul mentions are friends. The most obvious friend Paul is addressing is Timothy. I think it's safe to say that there is no person on the planet that Paul loves more than Timothy. At the beginning of this letter, he says to him, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. And Paul considers Timothy his dearly loved son, and in the final months of his life, there's no one he longs to see more than Timothy. And to be clear, this wasn't an easy ask of Timothy. It would have taken Timothy somewhere between four and six months to get from Ephesus to Rome. We might tend to think, wow, that's kind of selfish of you, Paul. But just to be clear, there's not a plot of dirt on this planet I wouldn't have left to go see my dad in the final week of his life. And that's the relationship that we're talking about here between Paul and Timothy. John Stott says of this friendship between Paul and Timothy, Human friendship is the loving provision of God for mankind. It was God himself who said in the beginning, it's not good that the man should be alone. Wonderful as are both the presence of the Lord Jesus every day and the prospect of his coming on the last day, they are not intended to be a substitute for human friendships. Paul lived a life on the go. He stayed in one place for a short time and then moved along. But he made deep, long-lasting friendships. Friendships are important in our lives. Let's continue to think about other friends. Let's look at Luke. Paul refer refers to Luke in Colossians 4.14 as the dearly loved physician. 
Kent Hughes describes their relationship as saying, Luke was a tough friend for tough times. He was with Paul in prison from the first time until the last time. He was Paul's biographer, and the wee passages in Acts indicate that he was with the apostle during some of the most difficult times of his life. He was his traveling physician. He tended Paul's ailing bones, and likely Luke was Paul's secretary for the writing of 2 Timothy and penned the personal self-effacing Luke alone with a wry smile. Luke was the friend who stays closer than a brother. Even when Paul feels like he's been deserted, trusty Luke is by his side. You almost get the sense when you read this letter that he's saying everyone is gone, but obviously Luke is here. Of course, Luke is here. In verse 19, Paul tells Timothy to greet Prisca and Aquila. We know them better as Priscilla and Aquila. Paul first meets Priscilla and Aquila in Acts 18. When he arrives in Corinth, they have just recently arrived from Rome. Uh, They own a tent-making business. Paul himself is a tent maker, and so he joins their business, and they allow him to stay in their home. If you were to ask me who are your favorite supporting characters in the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila are always going to be at the top of my list. Priscilla and Aquila were excellent friends and partners with Paul. At no point in the New Testament is one mentioned without the other being mentioned. They traveled with him to multiple cities. He left them in uh, Rome and Ephesus to encourage and build up the church. Priscilla and Aquila had a Christ-centered passion that affected every single thing they did, probably most importantly, their friendships, particularly with Paul. Lastly, Paul instructs Timothy to greet the household of Onesiphorus. Paul mentions the household of Onesiphorus earlier in 2 Timothy and says of him that he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered in Ephesus. And here at the end of the letter, he says, greet the household of Onesiphorus. So what do we know about this guy? Well, He came from Ephesus to Rome in search of Paul after he was arrested. We can assume he has never been to Rome, and Paul's whereabouts are not widely known. Uh, They didn't call the church in Rome and say, oh, by the way, we have Paul. He's in the Mamertine prison. Uh, Rome wasn't a safe place for Christians. And so if a stranger knocked on your door asking if you knew the whereabouts of Paul, you probably wouldn't have shared any information that you did or didn't know. But Paul says that Onesiphorus diligently searched and found him. Onesiphorus was on a dangerous mission to find, in the eyes of of the government, a dangerous criminal. I think it's safe to say that many of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, would have given up. Onesiphorus, however, did not. Imagine the jubilation Paul must have felt as old Onesi yelled down at the top of that dungeon. And Paul says that Onesiphorus often refreshed him. He didn't come once and leave. He came over and over and over again. He lived out Matthew 25, 34 through 40. Then the king will come to those on his right. Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? 
when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Both in chapter 1 and in chapter 4, Paul mentions Onesiphorus' household, but not him directly. So there are two options. First, Onesiphorus is still separated from his family, or the more widely held belief is that Onesiphorus has died in his service to Paul. That's why many believe uh, that he says in chapter 1, may the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. Whether Onesiphorus has died or not isn't really the point. The point is that he continually provided refreshment to Paul. I don't personally believe that there's any truer definition of godly friendship than someone who continually refreshes you. Shortly after we were told that dad's cancer was terminal, uh, we still were living in Birmingham, and my best friend Carter uh, lives in Mississippi, and he insisted that one Friday we meet halfway between our two cities, and there on a sidewalk in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, he embraced me, and for the first time in weeks, I felt like I could breathe. Why is that? Because Carter's friendship refreshes me. Let me ask you, believer, are you a refreshing friend? We have called this series in First and Second Timothy counterculture. It's about the world, be different from the world, but let me turn that reference onto church culture. I believe deeply that a significant problem in the church today is that we show up and we beg the question, who is going to do something for me? How am I going to be refreshed? How am I going to be made feel, to feel worthy? We walk into church like we walk into Target and we ask, what's here for me? And when we don't find it, we start the blame game. This person wasn't enough, or that pastor didn't do what I thought he should do. And let me encourage you that the majority of the time when you need to be refreshed, it's because you need to be a refresher. Why is it that my best friend in the entire world got in his car and drove hours to hug me on a sidewalk and to buy me lunch? It's because we've been together in the darkest nights of our adult life. Because outside of my wife, there's not one person on this planet more willing to get into the muck of life with me than Carter. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has done the same thing for us. The most godly friend you can be is someone who brings refreshing, not someone who sucks the life clean out of the room. Seek to be a refreshing friend, which leads us to the second evidence of God's grace in Paul's life, God's presence. Paul says in verse 16, At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. We know very little about Paul's trial here at the end of his life, but we do know some things about the Roman judicial system, and it would have included a preliminary defense hearing Uh, prior to a trial. That's similar to how our judicial system works. We can kind of surmise that that's what Paul is referring to here, his first kind of defense. Then surprisingly, Paul tells Timothy that no one stood by him. Roman law would have allowed him to have an advocate and call witnesses. Yet with all the Christians in Rome, there was not one person who stood by him. There's not significant information on the charges being laid against Paul, But we know from history kind of the sort of things that Christians uh, were accused of in Rome. Many believed that Christians were atheists because they preached against idolatry and emperor worship. 
They were believed to be cannibals because they spoke of eating Christ's body. Often Christians were accused of hating the human race because they renounced the popular pleasures of sin. That sounds really familiar. These all could have been charged against Paul, and so maybe out of fear for their own lives, no one was willing to stand with Paul. Paul is in a pathetic situation, and yet he prays, may it not be counted against them. Even in his darkest hour, Paul is fighting bitterness and simply praying a prayer of forgiveness on their behalf. And then in verse 13, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Brothers and sisters, in our darkest hours, when it seems everyone we know and love has fled, the man of all sorrows is there by our side. In Acts 23, Paul has been arrested and is on trial in Jerusalem. He's before the Sanhedrin. And at this defense, he is swiftly removed because Luke says that the commander of the Sanhedrin felt like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were going to rip him apart. And then Luke tells us that the following night, the Lord stood by him. Jesus physically stands by Paul and says, Take courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. It seems commonplace in Paul's life that Jesus stands with him. Now, we can't be sure in this instance in 2 Timothy that he's referring to uh, whether Jesus stood with Paul physically or not. And since it took place in the public Roman court, it's likely that Jesus isn't standing there in a bodily form. However, the memory of that night back in Jerusalem still rang loud with Paul as he heard the words of the Lord, take courage. Paul knew as well as you and I do that Jesus is always there standing with us. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle on the western limits, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. The Lord did more than just show up, though. He strengthened Paul. The Greek word Paul uses for strengthen is used many times in the New Testament. It's the same word Luke uses after Paul's conversion when he says in Acts 9.22, but Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the same word that Paul uses in 4.20 when he describes Abraham. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, God would do. It's the same word Paul gives to us in Philippians 4.13. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. And again in 1 Timothy 1.12, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. It's the word he gives to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Ignatius said of his own trial and death, but in any case, near the sword means near to God. With the beast means with God. Only let it be in the name of Jesus Christ, so that I may suffer together with him. I endure everything because he himself, who is the perfect human being, empowers me. Jesus didn't just show up with Paul in his darkest hour. Through his spirit and by his grace, he strengthened Paul. And so there in a Roman court, Paul lifts his head before magistrates and officials, before the emperor of Rome. He lifts his head and he proclaims the good news of the gospel of Jesus. He strengthened me, Paul says, so that I might fully preach the word and the Gentiles hear it. 
so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He's quoting Psalm 22 there. It's the same psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. It's as if he's identifying himself with the Lord. And I, and I argue that he himself is saying to Timothy, it is finished. On that Damascus road all those years ago, Jesus came to Paul and saved him for a mission. Ananias, who God sent Paul to after his conversion, was to tell Paul that he was to preach Jesus to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. And as the gospel of Jesus echoed in the halls of that Roman court, Paul had fulfilled his mission. And in all those years, through trial after trial, Jesus had stood with Paul. He was continuing to stand with Paul, and he would stand with Paul. Paul feels lonely in this dungeon. Certainly, he felt the presence of God in that place, but don't miss what Paul is asking when he tells Timothy to stop by Troas and get his books. He's asking for his Bible and for other study materials. Brothers and sisters, the best way for you to fulfill the presence of God is not to hope for some miraculous vision for, from God, which he certainly could do, but is to open your Bible and to live in it. That's how we fill the presence of God in our lives day in and day out. We open up the word and we meditate on it. And that leads us to the third and final evidence of God's grace in Paul's life, God's heavenly kingdom. Verse 18 says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is certain that this trial ends with his execution. More certain than his execution is Paul's unwavering belief that God rescues his children and brings them safely into his heavenly kingdom. For Paul, and someday for every believer sitting in this room, death holds two things. And one, one hand, death holds deliverance from the evils of this world. And in the other hand, it holds our destination, which is God's heavenly kingdom. Paul was confident in the word of God. God had promised that he will deliver his children. And Paul knew that that promise was for him. Paul had a deep friendship with God. He knew how God had acted and how he would act. Kent Hughes says of Paul, his confidence was also shored by his long experience in following God. Paul's yesterdays were prophecies of his tomorrow, and his tomorrows with Christ would be life like his todays with Christ. Paul's reality of a safe delivery into the heavenly kingdom was through beheading. But he knew that nothing could separate him from the love of God. Immediately at his death, he would be safely in the heavenly kingdom, freed from evil and in the presence of God. If you're a believer, the same safe delivery into the heavenly kingdom is for you. Maybe you're here today and you haven't put your trust in Jesus. Friend, God can rescue you as well. Your sin separates you from God. You have a broken relationship with him, but God sent his son Jesus to take the punishment for your sin by dying on the cross. And then on the third day, he rose to life again. When you believe in the Lord Jesus and you surrender your life to him, when you confess your sins and turn from them, then you too can be safely rescued into the heavenly kingdom of God. So we've looked at three evidences of God's grace in the life of Paul. So what do we do with that? I want to leave you with just a few takeaways. One, pursue gospel relationships. Look for ways to serve your brothers and sisters in the church. 
Maybe this is serving in church in one of our ministries. I think more it's maybe serving in a way that no one will ever see. Taking someone a meal because they're sick. Or helping someone because you have a skill that they don't have. Join together in the work of the gospel ministry. Paul never worked alone. He was always working alongside brothers and sisters to spread the gospel. Find someone to help you proclaim the gospel to others. God has not put you here in order to do life alone. Be a refreshing friend. Don't enter into friendship with a me mentality, but serve one another. Refresh one another and build each other up. Go out of your way to be a good friend. Number two, pursue friendship with Jesus so his presence is reality in your life. You may not ever have Jesus show up in person and stand next to you, but when you spend time in the word and in prayer, you will always feel his presence. And further, he will strengthen you. So make daily time in the word an absolute priority. And third, pursue the heavenly kingdom. Live your life knowing that this is not all there is. God is going to bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. And because that is true, you can certainly face uh, today. I know some of you are going through intense trials in your life. And if you're not, you will. Brothers and sisters, God will deliver you from the mouth of the lion. He will bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. And I'll simply close with this. In verse 22, He says, the Lord be with your spirit. That's a singular you. He's writing directly to Timothy. And then he says, grace be with you all. That's plural. And so my encouragement to you is this. All the grace that we see in Paul's life, at the end of his life while he's in prison, is available to you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the life of Paul. We thank you for the spread of the gospel that maybe through the spread of the gospel with Paul is why we all these generations later believe. Father, we thank you that Paul in his writing to Timothy helps us understand that your grace is everywhere in our life. Father, if we are in a dark night, if we are in a trial, if we will be in one, God, I pray that we would lift our heads and remember that you are with us, that your grace abounds with us even in the darkest nights. Father, we trust and we believe that each of us who believe in you, who have been saved from our sins, will be safely delivered into your heavenly kingdom. Father, we ask and we pray that you would do it quickly that you would deliver us from the evils of this world. And Father, in the meantime, we pray that the gospel proclamation would be first on our priority list. We pray, God, that we would be bold in sharing the gospel just like our brother Paul. And it's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.